to Blue Medicine Journal, a Jungian podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Luz del Castillo, a Jungian mentor, ritual artist, and dreamer, coming to you from out of the blue. This episode, called Postpartum Blues, La Llorona and the Shadow, was recorded just after Mother's Day on the new moon and in the month of May, which is dedicated both to mental health and Mary the Madonna. All synchronistic as we delve deep into the blues of this taboo topic and the shadow of the underlying patriarchal context from which they arise. This is one of three in a series that weaves together Mesoamerican myth and traditions, dreams, and the stories of three women from three different parts of the world as we gather to explore our own mythic descents into the postpartum blues, our paths to healing, and to reclaim childbirth as the profound rite of passage that it is. We look as well at the New Yorker article which inspired this series, What We Still Don't Understand About Postpartum Psychosis by Linda Winters. With that, I'd like to set the stage about the art of healing as we consider it in this podcast. Jung spoke of his approach to healing through the numinous, a word whose etymological root is numen, meaning divine spirit or presiding divinity. As Jung put it, the main interest of my work is not concerned with the treatment of neurosis, but rather with the approach to the numinous. But the fact that the approach to the numinous is the real therapy, and inasmuch as you can attain to the numinous experience, you are released from the curse of pathology. Even the very disease takes on a numinous character. We begin to glimpse this numinosity that Jung refers to as the stories in this podcast unfold. More recently, the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, unpacked what he called the art of healing. Speaking with Krista Tippett on the mental health crisis, the renowned physician, research scientist, and son of two doctors, Dr. Murthy pointed out that healing means to make whole. I would add that this is the aim of Jungian analysis as well. As Dr. Murthy tells us, healing is different from fixing. To be a healer, you have to be able to listen, to learn, and to love. Hear, hear. In this context, the healer becomes a partner in the healing process. May this understanding and these visions become the model and not the exception. Because our medical system in the U.S. is structured by the dictates of insurance companies and pharmaceutical industries, this kind of relationship with the physician, for the most part, is hard to come by especially when it comes to postpartum depression, for oh, so many reasons. This three-part series reveals some of the failings of a patriarchal model 
with regard to the postpartum blues. And as we reimagine women's health care in a kinder, just, and brave new world, we consider other healing modalities as well. In keeping with the Jungian tradition, as a mythologically informed depth psychology, we turn to the myths that guide us today, starting with La Llorona, whose roots stretch back to Mesoamerica. As Jungian analyst and storyteller Clarissa Pinkola Estes says, the myth of La Llorona evolves with time. And from what I can tell, it also seems to have devolved into Hollywood horror of late, resulting in all matter of modern nightmares, unfortunately. Today, I share two versions, the Purépecha telling, which is the pre-Hispanic telling, as well as the more commonly known post-conquest version, as Pinkola Estes tells it. La Llorona. A rich Hidalgo nobleman courts a beautiful but poor woman and wins her affections. She bears him two sons, but he deigns not to marry her. One day he announces that he is returning to Spain where he will marry a rich woman chosen by his family and that he will take his sons with him. The young woman is crazed and acts in the manner of the great shrieking mad women throughout time. She claws his face. She claws her own face. She tears at him. She tears at herself. She picks up the two small sons and runs to the river with them, and there throws them into the torrent. The children drown, and La Llorona falls to the riverbank in grief and dies. The Hidalgo returns to Spain and marries the rich woman. The soul of La Llorona ascends to heaven. There the master of the gate tells her that she may come to heaven, for she has suffered, but that she may not enter until she recovers the souls of her children from the river. And that is why it is said today that La Llorona, the weeping woman, sweeps the riverbanks with her long hair, puts her long stick fingers into the water to drag the bottom for her children. It is also why living children must not go near the river after dark for La Llorona may mistake them for her own children and take them away forever. This Catholic telling depicts the patriarchal reality imposed on women post-conquest. In some tellings, there is no promise of heaven for La Llorona, she is simply the bad mother and ghost who wanders the riverbanks wailing and stealing the children who stay outside after twilight. As you will find, this version is very different than the Mesoamerican telling. But before we begin that story, we turn first to Shadatanga, the new moon goddess and patroness of childbirth, from the Purépecha pantheon of the state of Michoacán and my ancestry. 
Sharatanga is the daughter of the, of the mother goddess Gorawaperi. She is one of the creator gods. Drawing from the Relacion de Michoacán Codex, historian Francisco Hurtado Mendoza describes Sharatanga as the daughter of the earth. She became the crescent moon in order to help her mother make the earth fertile, as well as the animals and humankind. Coyote, owl, and turkey vultures were the incarnation and physical form of the moon goddess and were always kept well-fed. Farmers revered Sharatanga and planted with her cycles, but the goddess's most delicate duty was that of the entrusted guardian of all pregnant women, who she cared for from the time of their conception to the time of their childbirth. Sharatanga had two temples. Her main temple still stands in Tsinsumsan, or the place of the hummingbirds. Next to her temple, the goddess had other temples built, including the temple of the jaguar, which housed the sweat lodges, where the recently married couples, or those wishing to have a child, would go for the ritual purification steam baths, and to make themselves fertile, and then await the delivery under the protection of the goddess. Under Sharatanga's care were also minor divinities called the Awikanime or Nanakuku. Their name means the aunt goddesses or tias diosas. These complex figures were the original Yoronas or weeping women. They were women who had died in their first childbirth and were now esteemed as warriors and heroes. At death, they were taken up into the heavens by Sharatanga, where they became midwives in her court. There were specific prayers, hymns, and rituals to invoke the Awikanima's help during childbirth. In their dark manifestation, the Awikanima's would descend from the heavens at midnight and wander the earth as pale shadows, wailing as they looked for their lost children. The Purépechas identified them as Las Lloronas, and they feared them not only for their sad and piercing laments into the long, dark night, but because their appearance was also an omen that presaged famines, calamities, destruction, or death. Whenever their cries were heard, the Purépecha people gathered in the wooden huts called trojes, where they held hands and in what was described as a timid chorus, they pleaded with the Awikanime, don't do it, Aunt Goddess, don't do it. Again, the duality of the gods is prevalent throughout Mesoamerica and world mythology. The gods are both creative and destructive. This understanding is evinced in nature itself, rain and sun, light and dark, life and death. In an ensouled worldview, this duality gives image to psychological wholeness. We are light and dark, consciousness and unconscious. We find the image of the celestial women warriors among the Aztecs as well. The women who died giving birth to their first child were believed to become celestial warriors. One of their tasks was to ferry the sun god across the sky from the zenith 
and then deliver him to the underworld at sunset. That said, it is important to note that not only the women who died in childbirth were given the status of warriors, childbirth was a rite of passage for all women, and they were conferred the status of warriors at least metaphorically after their first child was born. In Book 6 of the Florentine Codex, we learn from the Aztec midwife, we learn that the Aztec midwife spoke to the women in labor this way. My beloved maiden, brave woman, thou hast labored. Thou hast become an oscillate warrior. Thou hast exerted thyself. Thou hast encountered and imitated our mother, Siwakwatul Kilatsi. Now our Lord has placed thee upon the eagle warrior reed mat. Thou hast returned exhausted from battle, my beloved maiden. Brave woman, be welcome. As we see in this passage, the woman who has undergone labor is the exhausted brave warrior returned from battle, where she imitates the warrior goddess Siwakwat. According to historian Yolot Gonzalez Torres, Siwakwat Kilatsi was a Mexica warrior goddess. Siwakwat, whose name means woman serpent, held great significance in war and was associated with sacrifice and death. Here we see birthing process linked with death. Like all rites of passage, childbirth is a between worlds experience. The woman in labor imitates the warrior goddess and finds her within. The midwife then honors and welcomes the new mother back into the world of the living as a warrior. After childbirth, women throughout Mesoamerica stayed in the home for 40 days and were given special herbal steam baths to restore their wombs and strength. They and the baby were attended to by the midwives, mothers, and the women of the community and were given a tole, <clears throat> a maize drink, a, a nourishing and tasty maize flour drink packed with calcium for the nursing mom. In all these myths, we find the interrelationship between life and death and begin to grasp the significance of Jung's notion that the image is psyche. Mythic and religious images like dream images and symbols are vessels of the soul, styles and qualities of consciousness. Archetypal in nature, they guide, heal, and are transformative in nature. As Jung tells us, myths spring to life when read or recited. This is not to be taken in concrete, literal way, but as metaphoric pertaining to the soul realms, which again does not mean that the healing and transformation they evoke is not real. From a depth psychological understanding, the image of a first-time mother dying in childbirth and becoming a celestial warrior would serve not only to soothe the families who suffer her loss, but the image guides the soul and conveys a numinous process of transformation. From the terrestrial to the cosmic, from mother to celestial warrior and midwife in Sharatanga's court, a divine ancestor to whom the midwives and other mothers pray during their childbirths. 
To me, the weeping woman, La Llorona, is more the wailing women. They weep for all women who experience the loss of a child or the loss of their inner child. By reigniting our mythic ties to the imaginal realms, we're not romanticizing ancient religions or mythologies, but rather reclaiming the archetypal potentials and using them as guideposts within. Our understanding of labor and childbirth is not only deepened, but motherhood takes on fuller meaning as a rite of passage into warriorhood. These ancient Mesoamerican myths and birthing care traditions are so strikingly different from what we associate with pregnancy and labor today in modernity. In our patriarchal context, pregnant women are depicted as demanding and unreasonable harpies and women in labor as screaming hysterics. One of, the, of women's most powerful rites of passage has been reduced to a joke, the stuff of sitcoms and goofy commercials. The other image associated with motherhood in the patriarchy is the paragon of motherhood, Mary, the Virgin Mother, who has become the standard bearer for what all women must aim for. The underlying assumption is that the moment that we women carry a fetus within, all of our buried wounds and traumas are suddenly healed and we are 100% physically and mentally healthy and are financially stable, or we sure better be, or suffer the scrutiny and judgment overwhelmingly and gratuitously placed on mothers by the collective. Women are given episiotomies as a matter of routine and epidurals and C-sections, often by their own choice. In this environment, it is no wonder that postpartum blues remain in the closet. In the US, Education and emotional support services for mothers are underfunded or non-existent. For non-salaried workers, neither maternity leave nor childcare are offered, and a mother is left to fend on her own, expected to do it all with little or no sleep or help, and to do it perfectly, like the Madonna herself. Things are not so grim in Europe. I had my first daughter in Holland, where home birth was the primary birthing method and healthcare is universal. Both a midwife and a doctor attend the mother and after you give birth, a kramvrzorster or maternity sister comes to your home for 10 days to do the chores like cooking, cleaning and tending to the baby and family. They also teach first time moms how to change diapers and bathe the infant. Except for a symbolic copay, all of this is paid for by the government. That said, we witness daily the many complex and disturbing downsides of childbirth when it is no longer honored as a woman's rite of passage. When women are no longer warriors, but jokes to be laughed at or sentimentalized and paraded around once a year on Mother's Day. I'm not saying not to take mothers out for brunch and buy them flowers, but uh, they are never given the deeper recognition or help that we truly need and deserve. 
This is true, especially when we as women have bought into these patriarchal notions ourselves. For instance, when we imagine we need no rest or nurturing after giving birth, though our wombs and souls have been wide open and we have faced death and given life, or as we say in Spanish, dar a luz, we've given light. And so we opt to go to the mall with newborns just days old, or worse, back to work, because we may be fired otherwise. There is no time as sacred as being with a newborn. The mall can wait. Unfortunately, a job threat cannot. Again, it is not surprising then in modernity that one in seven women suffer postpartum blues, or PMADs, as they are called in modern medicine, which stands for perinatal or postpartum moods and anxiety disorders, which brings me to the New Yorker article by Linda Winters called What We Still Don't Understand About Postpartum Psychosis and how this episode began. I responded to this post, shocked that after so many years, after my personal experience with postpartum blues, that this phenomenon not only remained taboo, but that there was little or no funding for its research in, in mainstream medicine. By way of painting the larger picture, Jane Manning, a former sex crimes prosecutor and now director of Women's Equal Justice, addressed E. Jean Carroll's historic and victorious lawsuit against the former U.S. president and the privilege from which such a victory could spring. Manning noted that, these are her words, civil lawsuits are prohibitive for most survivors. The system is still not working and rape shield laws are very unevenly enforced. And in criminal justice, we still have police departments that can find overwhelming resources to arrest pe peaceful protesters or women selling food on the subway. But they are still not coming up with resources to do proper investigations of sex crimes or to train detectives to do trauma-informed interviews. We have to recognize the close connection with the health of women's rights and the health of our democracy. And to which I would add, and the health of, of our planet, our Earth democracy. What happens to women happens to the Earth. In this same vein, the director of women's mental health program at Mount Sinai, Viril Bergink, noted that postpartum psychosis has been around for thousands of years. And it is not an official disease category in the DSM-5. There is no money for it, not for research, nor for treatment. There are no guidelines. This is one of the most severe conditions in psychiatry, one that has huge impacts on the mother and potentially on the child, and there's nothing. Again, these are, these are her words. This is from the Winters article in The New Yorker. Again, we see the correlation between women's rights and the health of our democracy, which is key as we reimagine democracy, as we reimagine a new world. What does it look like in terms of childbirth, postnatal care, and postpartum blues? Winter's article, What We Still Don't Understand About Postpartum Psychosis, is haunting, grim, and enlightening. 
as it unpacks the heart-wrenching horrors and degrees of postpartum depression and how these are treated in modern medicine. What becomes clear in the reading, again, is how little is known about TMADS, as the title suggests, and how the care that does exist depends in large part on the dictates of the pharmaceutical industry, at least in the US. The following is taken from the article. About two months after Owen's birth, Liz attempted suicide. She then spent two weeks in a psychiatric ward. By the time Liz had a diagnosis of postpartum depression and was being treated with Zoloft, the antidepressant Abilify, a mood stabilizer commonly prescribed for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Uh, this is a quote from her husband. It was pretty clear that it was a revolving door situation with the patients. Brian said that the doctors were like, we are looking for drugs to solve this problem. We can't even begin to get to the bottom of someone's feelings. We are just trying to regulate here. That was my understanding of their approach. The crowded psych ward wasn't an environment that was conducive to feeling better. And it continued the detachment because she was away from Owen. The baby, the mother was away from Owen, Brian said. The husband went on to detail the many medications his wife was prescribed. And as he, was, as he crucially pointed out, these are his words, once a person isn't considered suicidal anymore, the insurance cuts you off. Unlike so many Winters ads, that Liz had access to healthcare providers, good insurance, and a proactive and observant partner. But at crucial times, it was shaped by what author Rachel Aviv calls the dictates of managed care. Patients must be diagnosed, prescribed medication, and discharged within a few days. The rapid turnaround isn't compatible with some of the antidepressants uh, medications prescribed for PMADS, which can take several weeks to fully kick in. And unlike many countries, including the UK, Australia, India, and throughout Europe, the US does not have mother, baby, inpatient psychiatric units because insurers will not cover hospital admission of a healthy infant. This is key. The fact that the country that likes to call itself the richest nation on earth does not provide Americans what countries the world over provide their people. As the article notes, the separation of the mother and child necessitates a huge transition that there's no way to pre prepare for to which I would add the consequences of the separation in terms of the mother-infant bond are dire and can be decidedly broken for life without proper care, which can include many healing modalities beyond pharmaceuticals, including the union. As we find in the article, postpartum blues differ in severity from postpartum depression to postpartum psychosis. The word psychosis means mental affliction or derangement. 
The etymological roots of the word, however, come from psyche, the Greek word meaning mind, life, or soul, plus osis, meaning abnormal condition. For the ancient Greeks, however, psychosis meant a giving of life, animation, principle of life. I was struck by the irony of this in the context of PMADS or postpartum depression. And I wondered at what point psychosis changed from meaning a giving of life to a mental affliction. Curiouser and curiouser. The main story in Winter's article centers around a young woman who killed her three children, ages five, three, and seven months, and then jumped from a top floor window of the house in a suicide attempt, apparently. She was 32 years old, suffering from depression, insomnia, and decreased appetite. She had checked herself into a psych ward, had been checked into a psych ward, and belonged to an online face group for postpartum depression, excuse me, depression, uh, which apparently abound. According to report, uh, reports, between October and January of that year, she was prescribed at least 12 different medications. And while the article doesn't say so, I can imagine more than one of the so-called side effects of those was suicide. On January 24th of that year, the young woman was arraigned on murder and assault charges from her Boston hospital bed. The initial symphony, excuse me, sympathy expressed for the young woman on social media had been largely replaced by condemnation. Echoing the haunting Yorona story from the post-conquest, it could be argued that it speaks to the collective abandonment, betrayal, and isolation a young mother experiences within a patriarchal system. As we learn from the article, postpartum psychosis is rare, affecting one or two in a thousand women. And filicide, driven by postpartum psychosis, is rarer. It appears to come on suddenly and is sometimes foreshadowed by insomnia and anxiety. It can be accompanied with signs of mania, depression, oral hallucinations, paranoia, or delusions. A woman may stay awake at day and night, and at times she may appear to be perfectly normal. Winter adds, Winters adds that PMADs are pointedly underdiagnosed and often undertreated even when they have been recognized. According to one estimate, only around 3% of women with postpartum depression are treated to remission. What struck me most about this article is that there is nothing healing for women in this model of modern medicine in the US. This is not the fault of the dedicated doctors and nurses who are grossly overworked in the US, but rather a system that values only the bottom line and falls more into the category of factory farming, just as cruel and inhumane. Which brings us back to the close connection between the health of women's rights and the health of our democracy and the health of Earth, and how we have come to conceive of democracy 
and or accepted. As we imagine a new world into being on this fortuitous new moon, let us consider and reimagine our vision of democracy and women's health with the funding it needs and the healing modalities beyond pharmaceuticals or the dictates of insurance companies. Let's glean from antiquity and consider the Asclepian, excuse me, Asclepian temples of Greece dedicated to Asclepius, the god of medicine, whose staff carried the two interwoven serpents. These were sanctuaries of ceremonial healing practices with curative associations woven together with the emerging science of medicine. There were healing baths, purification diets, dream incubation, and uh, presumably the ingestion of sacred entheogens. With the billions of dollars floating around on yachts, there is enough wealth for these models to be considered, to be integrated into modern medicine. As Macy reminds us, we must build with our hearts what we wish to give birth to in the world. Imagine. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next new moon for part two of the three-part series, Postpartum Blues, La Llorona and the Shadow. Our guest will be Romanian artist Cornelia Tay, whose watercolor series Blue Milk chronicles her postpartum blues and acted as her healing modality. And the founder of the Tonantzin Society, Cristina Valdivia Alcala, who found her path to healing in Jungian analysis. A special thanks to Lucas Bacher, our producer, editor, and the backstage wizard whose original music adds to the re-enchantment here at Blue Medicine Journal, a Jungian podcast.